resides in Oregon and has a deep history of supporting others and empowering her community. A retired transition teacher, Megan now works with Compassion and Choices, an advocacy organization working towards the goal of giving people the option of medical aid in dying. Megan also serves her community as a death doula, helping those transition from life to death. In this episode, we are thrilled to learn from Megan as she explains the role and responsibilities of a death doula. Thank you, Megan, for your constant commitment to making the world a better place. Excellent. We are in business, everybody. And welcome to those who are listening. We are here with Megan. Uh, Megan, introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself and what your role is and why you're joining us today with the Death with Dignity podcast. Yeah, thank you, uh, Andrew, for having me. Um, my name is Megan, and I am a death doula and end-of-life guide um, based in Portland, Oregon. Um, I also uh, happen to work with Compassion and Choices, which is an organization that you are obviously familiar with, and your audience certainly is too. Um, and so I have the uh, distinct pleasure to get to work uh, there during the day, and then to be able to do work um, with other with other folks um, facing end of life issues uh, outside of work as well. Um, and I am also a, uh, a former veteran <laughs> special ed teacher. Yeah, um, yeah. I spent ten years, <laughs> ten years teaching high school um, transition and life skills, and love and and miss that deeply. But um, now I get to do this full time. So and that's absolutely wonderful and commend you and just uh, thank you for, you know, your work in that realm with the special ed world. That's something I do as well, supporting almost the same exact type of students um, yeah. you know, in that transition phase from high school into adulthood. And it is such a fun age and very challenging as well. And I think uh, it's just fantastic. You clearly are here doing wonderful things to help serve our world and make it such a better place. Tell us a little bit about what got you into, how about we'll start with the special education field and then what made you decide to transition from that and support people in another way? Yeah. Um, so I never in a million years thought I would be a teacher. I don't know about you, but <laughs> that was never the plan for me. I know you um, definitely have had connections to it. Um, but I really didn't. I didn't. Um, I struggled a lot in school um, and never would have seen myself that way. <laughs> but um, my parents convinced me to go to college. And um, after that, I um, became a copywriter um, here in Portland. That was kind of like after college um, between uh, I actually did two master's programs. So my first was in university administration. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, and was was copywriting and doing some other artsy stuff around town. I did stand up for a while cool. and someone actually came to one of my shows and then came up to me afterwards and said, hey, do you ever teach improv workshops? And I said, sometimes, yeah, I, you know, I have. And they said, would you be willing to come and do one at this nonprofit art school I work at? Um, and I said I was interested. And they said, OK, it's um, it's a school for adults 
with developmental disabilities um, and it's performing arts. And I had no experience at all um, and wasn't sure what to expect and showed up to teach an improv class and had the most fun I'd ever had. <laughs> um, and so then they asked me to come on as a teacher. So I taught theater um, at that program for a couple of years. And just a few months into it, I was like, oh, wait, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so applied and got into another master's program for special education. Um, and then that led me to, like you were saying, that transition age of between high school and kind of like on your own. And those are the years that I struggled with the most. And then seeing how some of my students in their uh, in their 20s, 30s, I had students that were in their 60s and 70s, as well as students who were, you know, 19. And um, I saw consistently across the board <clears throat> the, uh, some of the things that they needed and some of the projects that would bring kind of all of the age groups together and felt like they were really fun and engaging. And I enjoyed my work so much. I wanted to do it all the time. Um, and as soon as I found out you could, that was, that was the goal. So did that for many, many years and, um, loved it, loved my students. I also taught theater just at the high school, um, for all students, which was great. So I, I ran the theater department also. Ooh. Um, so that was fun. Cause I got to work with like all students. Um, and it really was really great. And I got to really lead a lot of the, um, inclusion efforts that we had, which was fantastic. Um, but I think, um, you know, I started my doula journey, I think in 2019, I started feeling like uh, I needed something else outside of my work to ground me um, and to not feel like I was my work. I don't know about you or your experience, but as an educator, that can become your full identity and it can start to feel like the only thing people know you for and Right. All of your friends are from work because it's so insular and you yep. work so close and you have to trust each other so, so much. And so it becomes very focused on, on just that. And it started to really affect me. Um, and so when I thought about what are the things I care about outside of education, um, you know, one of the things that was always really difficult for me was supporting students through grief and watching students experience loss. And I had gone through that enough with them and experienced enough myself at a young age that I started to wonder what I could do with that. Um, and so started researching and found out about death doulas and kind of started taking classes. And it just filled me in a different way than teaching did and um, brought me a lot more joy than I expected, I think. <laughs> and so um, I actually showed up to CNC as a volunteer. I said, I just, I want to learn more. I'm passionate. I've always been passionate about medical aid and dying. You know, I born and raised in Oregon. So my whole family, that's just always been something that people were comfortable talking about in my family. Um, and so it's, it was exciting to get the opportunity to volunteer. And then on top of that, to get the opportunity to actually change careers and move full time into working for them. Wow. What an amazing story. And first, I'd like to just recognize that I think it's so cool how you fell into the career path of teaching special education and supporting those people. And it's people like you taking that risk that make it a stronger community and help build that empathy and understanding and 
I think in the end, the recognition that we're all just, you know, we want to celebrate everybody's humanity and we all have different perspectives, including people who might have a disability. So Mm -hmm. to see that you're there to help support them, um, what a, what a unique way to get involved from a stand up improv session and then supporting, (laughs) you know, a school for people with disabilities in that uh, realm. So cool. And the recognition for you to see that that kind of life stage was over and you needed more. That's something that not a lot of people are willing to do. It's scary, that change. It's intimidating. And I can imagine it was very tough. Yeah, it was really, really challenging. Yeah. And when you're comfortable, you're in a routine and a position such as teaching something you're familiar with for years and years to roll the dice and, you know, flip the script like that is it takes a lot of courage. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I was saying to my mom before we talked, I was like, I have a feeling that this person was, we were brought together for a reason. So I really am uh, just excited about the chance to chat with you. Tell us a little more. How did you learn about, I guess, the concept of a death doula? Just searching on the internet and the library, maybe through CNC. This is something I think that in our society is not really as recognized. Yeah. So, you know, and I've come to, you know, learn a lot more about it, but I, I think the first, if I remember correctly, I think the first time I actually even heard about one was on a YouTube video. Um, (laughs) I was watching, um, Caitlin Doherty's YouTube channel, which is called ask a mortician. Um, and Caitlin, uh, is in charge of the order of the good death, which is kind of a network of death workers across the globe, really. And, um, on her video, she, or she had a video about what is a death doula. Um, and I watched it and I thought, oh my gosh, that's a thing people do. Like I did that for my grandparents. I did that for friends that have died. I had no idea that that was like a job you could have. Um, or, or even something you could offer as, you know, I volunteer my work as a doula. And so even just knowing that that's something you could do was wild to me. Um, and so I started researching it more um, and really found how the breadth of options, there are so many different kinds of end of life guides and doulas that do so, it's so expansive. There's so many things you can do with that. And there's tons of, you know, trainings and and educational programs you can go through. Um, But I always like to say, I think that it is really, it is um, work that I think is in all of us. It's supporting, it's, you know, non-medical support of somebody who is at the end of life. For some doulas, they do pre-planning work with families. So maybe they're not really there at the end, but they help families with advanced directives or help them find resources. Some doulas specialize in sitting vigil during active death. And there's just this huge range of options of support, but it's it's usually really social, emotional, um, spiritual, if, if appropriate. And also just being there for family members and um, making sure that it's patient-centered and patient-directed. That whoever that person is, that's who I'm working for not working for their family, not working for their medical team. I'm working for them and navigating with them and with their families to see what works for them. Um, and there are so many incredible doulas. It's it's so inspirational. I, I take classes with people all the time that are doulas I've never worked with who I like, I want to take all their doula 101 classes and see if there's something I've missed, you know, and 
So it's a really cool community and I feel really lucky, but I, it really is like heart work, you know? I mean, ancestrally everywhere, there's always been somebody, right? Like in a village or in a small town, there was always somebody that took care of folks who were at the end of life and folks who had passed. There was always somebody that was like in charge of that. Um, and so the history of it, you know, especially in the U.S. really shows us that, um, you know, after embalming became really popular, um, after um, the Civil War, we started to see less and less people doing death and dying at home or having family or community members supporting them. And so I think that now there was a resurgence of wanting to understand why we walked away from that. <laughs> like, why, why did we decide to remove that element rather than having it be a part of everything, right? Like I, I want to, a doula is somebody who can, an end of life guide, doula, whatever you want to call us, there's lots of names. Um, you know, really the goal is to go between and, and support and bridge the supports for someone. Um, and so it's a beautiful addition. And I think it's just something that um, it's scary though, right? The, I, I mean, it, it requires you to confront your own feelings and fears before you can sit witness to someone else's. And I think that is probably the most challenging part for a lot of people, but it is such, it's so powerful and rewarding. And it's been really wonderful to work with people who experience disability, who are at the end of life um, or whose family members do perhaps, and they like need support trying to navigate that. I mean, that has been a really cool overlay um, of my work um, as a teacher that I kind of get to carry in. That's yeah, absolutely incredible. As we have been experiencing and having these interviews with the podcast, I feel like my relationship and perception of death has changed for the better. I feel much more comfortable with the idea and my own end of life experience. Uh, one of the things that comes with somebody pass dying and passing on is is grief and lots of different emotions as a death doula somebody who is actively involved with other people and their end of life experience how does that weigh on you emotionally mm -hmm. is that something that's really heavy for you have you found certain strategies that work are there certain cases that might be heavier or lighter than others um especially in our society I think when we think about death and talk about it, it's instantly like a morbid thing. People think of it as a morbid thing. Whereas now I'm in a position where I feel like I finally understand that death is just a part of our process of life too. It's something that we all will experience undoubtedly and to be more comfortable with it and accepting of it has been very helpful for me as I navigate this whole experience, but that comes with a lot of emotions. So how do you balance that? And is it, are there harder days than others when you help support people? That is a really good question. Um, and yes, <laughs> uh, it is, it, it does weigh. Um, but I think that the times where it weighs heavy are when I feel like the end wasn't exactly what I wanted them to have, or I will fear, um, you know, I hope I didn't let them down. I hope that that went as smoothly as they wanted it to. Right. And often those struggles come from, um, you know, families. So sometimes there's a lot of chaos at the end and disagreement with family members or fear and panic that kind of shows up at the end that I know disturbed the experience for everyone. 
And that is really challenging to let go of and to recognize is a part of of the death process and has happened in my family. So nobody is immune to it. And I think that's really important too, that it is something that I think about constantly that I work on, that I have to work on constantly because that fear is so primal in us. We can't expect ourselves to not have it. Um, It's a matter of like continuing to check in with it. Where is my fear today? What is it around? Is it around my death? Is it around a loved one? Is it around um, the lack of control? Is it around the medicalization? Like what are the parts that are really hard for me right now? Um, And so usually I, (laughs) I guess like, I don't know. I think, I don't know if you ever do this, but you know, having worked with students who um, maybe their behaviors don't match societal norms. Um, and maybe I'm taking data on, on that and trying to figure out where that root comes from. I feel like I do that to myself. And I feel like I do that to clients sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yes. I'll be like, ooh, I can see where that came from. Like, I know what the sure. antecedent to this was. <laughs> like, I know what happened. Yeah. Um, and I think that helps me. I think also um, therapy. I am in therapy and have been for gosh, eight years I've been seeing my therapist and he has been like so supportive through this whole process and um, through my job change, through me exploring this work. Um, And I think that's crucial. I think that um, honestly journaling, I know it's so cheesy because everybody says that, but I think it really works. Um, And there's actually a journal, is it up here? I'll try to show it to you because I think it's up here. (laughs) Um, I have this like, this journal called I will die (laughs) and it's a creative journal for mortals. And there's like prompts um, that you can draw or respond to or whatever. And I find things like that really helpful um, because sitting and thinking like, Oh, how do I feel about death is like so huge and so daunting and completely misses the nuance of what that actually means, because we're thinking about it. We're not thinking about the individual components of it. Um, And so I really like doing that and thinking about, you know, what are the things that bring fear or anxiety in me and where do they come from? I think if, if we're able to continue to do that, like I, I have found that to be successful for me, that it has instead allowed me to have the work fuel me. Um, And I'm also able to check in with myself and say, I need a break, which has also happened. Um, you know, if there was a situation with family that was really painful or maybe a patient really did stick with me, there's, I mean, all of them do, but sometimes there are some that remind you of a loved one or whatever. And, and those are, those can be challenging. And so finding tangible grief rituals for myself is really important. (laughs) Things that I can make or do or burn or write, whatever that might be. Um, and I, I think I I try to um, lean into and tell myself over and over again, our bodies know how to die. Um, They know how to do very few, (laughs) you know, they do, they know how to do a lot of stuff for us, but knowing how to die is core for all of us. All of our bodies know how to do that. And I think that there's beauty in that Um, recognizing that our bodies can do that and that it will happen. It, it allows that recognition that it's, it's a part of everyone's life because it's built in. Um, and, and honoring that process, 
I think is really beautiful. Understanding the process can be really beautiful. I know that's not for everybody, um, but I like to ha- to know what's happening, know what what I'm working with. Um, <laughs> and like when you do that, it's um, it's like you're shining a light on the monster in the closet. You know, if you can actually see it and actually um, see it for what it is, you can start handling it rather than being so scared you don't want to look. Yeah, wonderful analogy. One of the things that we find as a recurring question on this podcast is, do you think that we as a society, specifically here in America, have a difficult time discussing death and I guess grappling with it when people do die? Is this something that we just don't want to talk about? Is it something that we know is there and just kind of put to the on the back burner? Um, and with that, do you see that changing as we move forward with services such as this or organizations like Compassion and Choices? Yeah. Um, yes, I think that our <laughs> the um, specifically the U.S. we definitely have a hard time discussing death, talking about it. I, there's probably a million different reasons for that. <laughs> I know there are. There's plenty of things you can tie it to. I think the fact that death and dying is um has become something that people aren't involved in their family that family members aren't involved in that community members aren't involved in it's it's something we hide or we don't want to talk about or um people turn away from because it's too uncomfortable and so that has built built in this fear um you know but i i try to re- remember that just a few generations ago death and dying was happening at home. Um, it was happening with doctors coming to the home. It was happening with, you know, community members that would watch people's children or cook food or, um, clean house, whatever. Um, and we don't do that anymore. And so because of that, very few of us have experiences with death until we've lost somebody we care about, um, or until we're facing it ourselves. And those are two really, really bad times to have to start thinking about that. (laughs) Those are really bad times. And we don't talk about it in schools. We don't, I mean, you and I know that, like, we don't, we don't talk about that enough with kids. I think that's a huge problem. And that's something that I hope we're able to change, you know, in, in cultures where whole families are involved in end of life processes, you have kids who grow up not afraid of, of death, kids who are ready to talk about it, who are ready to support their family members, who understand how important community is. And so I think that that is, it's a serious problem that we, we have. And I think that there's so many other places that do it better than us. <laughs> and I'm hoping that we can start to, ha- there are more of those conversations happening. And I think you know, the growth of doulas is definitely a part of that. You know, there's been so much media over the last three or four years um, about end-of-life doulas. And I think that that concept, even if somebody doesn't hire a doula, just the concept has sparked conversations for family members. Um, Just reading an article might spark a conversation that changes things for people. And so I do think that that's changed. I think, you know, there's more media about end of life now than there was five years ago. Um, I think COVID has been a huge part of that. Um, but I do think it's changing. And I think that it's it, that fear 
has been really strong for a few generations. And I, you know, I understand where it came from, but it's definitely interesting to see like the way I talk to my parents, my parents are baby boomers. And so like conversations with them about death or my grandparents about death are very different. (laughs) So I think that there's just a lot of generational work happening, but it's, I think it's, it's changing. And, and with more people like you, um, who are willing to share their stories, uh, I think it's forcing a lot of people to think about it in a good way, facilitating people thinking about it. Sure. Thank you. That was, that was a nicely said. And I, I agree. I do think we have difficulties having this discussion. For example, we have a hard time saying that person died. We'd rather say they passed on or they checked out or kicked the bucket or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just as simple as a language of recognition and saying, yes, that person is dead. They are no longer here. That's something we even avoid, whether it's subconscious or not. So I think that in itself kind of speaks volumes in a way. Absolutely. One of the pieces, and we talked a little bit about this early on when we were looking to schedule this discussion, but one of the pieces I'm curious about concerning a death doula is if there's any sort of certification process. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, it sounds like you've taken classes, met with the other doulas and people in this profession. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that's like and if there is a specific certification And if not, do you think that that's something that might be adopted as we move forward with this type of practice? Yeah, great question. And I, I only have speculation, so I will just say that is all obviously all my opinion. Thank but, you um, for that. Just uh, <laughs> just full disclosure and being honest, friend. And hey, I, yeah, I love just, hearing your perspectives. I'm yeah, learning a lot right now, so please good. fill okay. us in, enlighten us. Okay, so um, so there are no like required licenses across the board. In some states, depending on, so I'll use Oregon for an example. If I here wanted to do certain parts of a funeral, I guess there's like really specific things that if I wanted to do them and charge money for them, I would have to get like something from the funeral board. Um, And that's just, it's not something I charge for anyway, so I haven't had to worry about it. And there are some states where, in fact, in California, um, our legal team has, has worked on supporting some doulas who were told that they need to register as a funeral home, even though they don't do any of those services. So it, it can be contentious from state to state, usually between individual practicing doulas or coalitions of doulas and, you know, mortuary or funeral boards. So there is a lot of conversation about like, what is, what should require a license and what shouldn't. And it often does come down to money. So, um, but at the same time, it's also a freedom of speech thing, right? So if I have knowledge, I want to be able to share that knowledge. And I think that there's a problem putting a required piece of paper between me sharing my knowledge with someone, right? Um, because I'm not a doctor and death doulas are not medical professionals, but they're, what I like to say is it's kind of like having a neighbor come over after a loss and they're like, I've been there, let's talk about it. Or after a diagnosis and they're like, let's, I can help you because I'm not in it the way you are. Um, and so that's kind of the exchange. However, there are some there it, just in the last, I would say probably five, five to seven years, there's been this huge influx of training programs. 
and they run the gamut from you know small local groups that that hold some really basic classes that are kind of geared towards you know I think a lot of doulas have the goal of I would love to work myself out of a job right like I want to educate people so that everybody can do this for themselves and their families and not have to hire anybody or have to go searching for someone but just to have that knowledge in their family already and so I think a lot of us are are hoping for that <laughs> and so um so a lot of those groups will do small community stuff because they're they really just want to teach people who want to support their family members but you have that all the way up to programs that are a few thousand dollars that you can go through and kind of get a certification at the end of it. And you learn everything from, you know, um, body care and advanced, you know, advanced planning and like working with medical teams and finding green burial uh, and having a business. And like, how do you report all of that? So there's programs where you can get all that information and then some where you can kind of specialize um, or get, um, specific smaller pieces of information, maybe around, um, you know, somebody might have one that's literally around active dying. Like, what does that 12 to 24 hours look like? Or, um, so there are some of the large ones, um, work, but there's a few different doula kind of groups that are non-required, but are kind of seen as, if you work with them or have gone through their exams, you're kind of like top tier, right? Um, so one of those is the, here in the U.S., is the National End of Life Doula Alliance. Um, I always tell people if they want to find a doula to go to the NEDA, um, uh, to the NEDA website, they have like a roster of, of doulas. They also have a certification or um, like a certificate program where you can take an exam, get that from them. And that's like a credential that a lot of organizations take pretty seriously. Um, I think that a lot of doulas are hoping to see death doulas involved in hospices the way that birth doulas have begun to be connected to hospitals. And so the NIDA um, piece is... is um, a stepping stone for a lot of people to that. So I'm actually studying for that exam right now um, because ultimately if it becomes something that, um, you know, that hospices hire for, they, they will want to see that. And I understand that, right? I understand the balance between why it's important to have some sort of program licensure, et cetera, especially if it's, you're getting paid and there's insurance involved and whatever. I absolutely understand that. I also think that requiring it would be a huge mistake because it is community work and because so few people do get paid for it. And not a lot of people want, like a lot of people just want to learn. Um, and so I think that having the knowledge is beautiful and should be easily accessible to anyone. Um, but there definitely are options to kind of be more specialized and I, or, or more um, kind of next level, more advanced um, and I think that's great because I, I know that I would probably want to know what kind of education somebody's been through before I hired them. So it makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of options out there. Um, I hope it never becomes required, but it is great to know that there are some certifications that you can look for that are kind of specialized. Um, and I'm currently in, uh, in one right now that I you know, I've already taken a couple certification classes and I'm in another one right now because I wanted to. Um, and it's a great setup for the NIDA exam. So 
it's a constant learning process, I hope. So absolutely. Wonderful answer. And I can tell uh I think it's cool how you are how you recognize how this is such a powerful tool for people to have. And it's not really necessarily of course you'd want to be able to, you know, live comfortably and have you want income and all that, but at the same time, it's not like I don't see a lot of death doulas, you know, getting rich and like you know, making millions of dollars off this. Right. So you clearly are in it for the right reasons. I, I, and like you, I I get it too. It's nice to know that there's some kind of, I guess, certificate or just idea or understanding background knowledge, whatever. But at the same time, yeah, I feel requiring that would limit and kind of deter people from wanting to be involved. Yeah. That's my worry. Yeah. Right. Like I, if somebody's saying, Hey, I just found out my partner, like my partner just got this diagnosis or my aunt or my mom or whatever. And I want to be able to support them. You know, I would hate for some sort of like fee exam fee or something to be a barrier to someone getting that information. Um, And, you know, a lot of the training programs can be expensive. So a lot of them have scholarship options, which is really great. I highly recommend if people are looking into courses to do that Um, because there are some groups that will definitely give you, um, you know, give you discounts if you are, are are in need. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's great to also, when you're deciding whether you're, um, whether you're deciding to become a doula or deciding to hire one, you know, there are just so many, you know, hopping onto the group's website. If somebody says like, I'm going through a program with going with grace is the name of the program I'm in. So, if somebody finds that out about me, they can go to the Going With Grace website, see what the coursework is like, see what I learned, see what the philosophy of that group is. And I think that's one of the other cool things is that even if there's not a certification, it, um, like a formal one, if somebody says, oh, yeah, I got a certificate at such and such, um, you know, doula group, I took their doula training course, you can like learn what that that crew is all about online. So that, that is really helpful. I think like, um, there, there's just so many options. It, it can feel overwhelming, but I think it's great. And just being able to get the knowledge that you, that fits your life, fits your goals and priorities and fits what you're trying to do, um, is really important. Like you said, a lot of doulas don't charge, but some of them do, some of them do sliding scale. And it's like, okay, if I have a client who maybe has that, the ability to pay, I have, you know, maybe I have a sliding scale and then they pay this much. And then the next person who really doesn't have the funds to pay me, I don't need to charge them. So there's a lot of doulas who kind of balance that way. Um, There's also some collectives where there's, you know, multiple doulas and then they can kind of share. So, you know, if I'm with a client and another client is an active death, there's another doula that can go and sit with them. So there's also collectives that you can search for that kind of offer different options based on your needs, um, which I think, again, is, and there's some who do it all tele, like all online, they do all the, um, all their doula work over Zoom. So, I mean, there's just so much. technology. Exactly. But like you said, I just, I just hope that we don't see a day where it is required to pay money to get a certification, to have this like really important, like what I think is like ancestral knowledge. I think it's in all of us to take care of one another at the end. Um, 
but sometimes we just need help learning about it and learning what to expect. Absolutely. Now, the podcast, it's called the Death with Dignity podcast. And one of the reasons we got this started was because of the, in California, it's called the End of Life Option Act. And a lot of people refer to this as medical aid in dying. I wanted to ask you about how that law has impacted your life. You mentioned being a resident of Oregon, a lifelong resident of Oregon, which is where this whole movement started. Um, tell us about what that was like as it that option was becoming available. And also, if you have experiences as a death doula supporting people who might have used that option as well. Yeah. So, you know, I was a kid when it was enacted, but I know my mom worked in the hospital system. Um, and so it was something that my family kind of talked about pretty openly as a kind of no brainer. That should be an option kind of a thing. Um, my family though there is struggle sometimes to actually talk about death and talk about our wishes, um, that is an option has never been shocking to anyone. Um, however, nobody in my family has, has utilized it. Um, and so, you know, I didn't have a lot of like hands-on experience or a lot of information. Um, but when I, I, um, about the same age, um, born around the same time as Brittany Maynard. And I remember when her story came out in People Magazine, I was in grad school and I remember getting it in the mail and was like, oh my God, she's my age. And it like threw me. And I remember that. Um, and she looked a lot like, you know, I just gotten out of college, um, a few years. And so she, you know, she looked like my friends. And, um, so I remember searching information and getting connected to CNC about that. And I think that it became something that I was able to start talking about with friends who, um, you know, I was really active in college and reproductive rights movement. Um, and, and this kind of, there's conjunction, right? Like there's some intersection there about autonomy and, and, bodily decision-making. And so I think that that always became an interest area of mine. And then again, um, as a special education teacher, having students, um, especially when I worked at the art school, I had a lot of students who were old enough that they had been institutionalized, that they'd gone through like a lot of these really um, terrifying medical experiences. And once I kind of saw the way that those medical experiences impact people long-term, and how, um, and then how that impacts end of life decision making. It just it kind of like went in a little bit of a natural progression, I guess, for me. But that's kind of how I got to it. And I think um, I am proud of the fact that I live in a state that kind of has always been um, ahead of the game in that department. You know, um, always been kind of cutting edge in terms of um, end of life. You know, we we're one of the first doing um, uh, aquamation and, and things like that, green alternative burial options and having some really incredible community hospice organizations and stuff. So I think it's always been good to do that work here. Um, because I think people recognize Oregon as a, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say death positive, but a, um, less, uh, less avoidant state. 
um, which I think has helped with patients. Um, and I've, you know, I have, I've supported a couple of people, um, who utilized, um, uh, medical aid in dying. Um, and it was beautiful. I feel very honored that I was a part of that. Um, I think that there are some kind of end of life guides who kind of specialize in that, um, or kind of have, have more experience working with folks around that. And I think, you know, someday I'd like to be able to kind of maybe teach around it or <laughs> teach other doulas, um, because it feels overwhelming, um, and is a totally different thing. Right. Cause I was just talking about our bodies know how to die. And so when you feel like, oh gosh, am I coming between that? Or, you know, it can be challenging ethically for doulas the same way it can be for anybody else involved in the process. So, um, you know, I've, I have been honored to be a part of it, honored to teach people about it. Um, and I think, you know, it's exciting to see that even in the states where legislation isn't happening right now or where medical aid and dying um, bills are not necessarily passed uh, or, or even in the next coming years, maybe we got a ways to go. Um, the fact that we're able to, to educate people the way we are and the fact that those conversations are at least happening, you know, in, in the states where it is being um, fought for or where it is legal, um, you know, those conversations are going national or those conversations are going regional and all of a sudden more people are asking questions. And I think um, that's really exciting and powerful, I think. I agree. I wanted to ask if you ever have people who maybe don't have a very positive perspective, perspective regarding the idea of a death doula or even medical aid and dying for that matter. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you're supporting someone and they have a family member who doesn't agree with it. Mm -hmm. And if you've had these experiences, uh, do you mind just sharing with us and the listeners as to how you respond and um, I guess how you, you know, go about your business? <laughs> yeah, I would say, I think, you know, I haven't, um, I haven't worked directly with anyone whose family kind of pushed back on aid and dying because I've only been with a few clients and their families were really supportive. But I think the key to that is that they they had already had conversations with their doctor. They'd been really open. They'd have family conversations. I think those are 110% like the most important thing. And if a doula can support having the conversation, I think that's the most important thing. In general, though, I absolutely have run into families who are just uncomfortable with me being there, whatever it may be. Um, however, I would say like 90% of the time I'm being reached out to by a family member, not the person themselves. But sometimes within the families, like the sister called me and the brother doesn't know why I'm there, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I think you could probably relate to this. I think my years of teaching helped. I think my years of yes. parent-teacher conferences with divorced parents helped yes. a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and just working with teenagers who are dealing with, like, fear and frustration with being out of control of their life decisions. And so I think understanding that and really just sitting and holding space for people struggling, you give them a chance to talk through it, right? I think so much of our fear around death and dying is because it's all in our head and we're not verbalizing it and sharing it with other people um, because it is a human experience. And I know people always say you came into this world alone and you'll leave, but like the reality is you, 
you don't. There's people, even if they're not physically with you, there are people with you when you go in your head, in your heart, whatever it is. And so being able to tell a family member, like, I see this, I see your anger, let's talk about it. And usually when there's verbalization, then all of a sudden we're getting snippets and it's sounds like maybe we're, we're scared about this thing. It sounds like maybe we, we need to understand this thing. Can I get some more information from you? Do you want to have another conversation with the doctor about this? Let's like, what, what more information can we get so that you can fill in some of those gaps um, and understand it better? Because often we're, you know, our brains always want to fill in the gaps with our assumptions if we don't know something or don't know what to expect. And then that leads to panic and, and pushback. And so I, um, was just telling you, I told you earlier, I got to see, um, was chatting with Dana Nelson this morning, who I know you had on the show and Dana and I've become really, really close, um, over the last, oh gosh, I don't know, eight or nine months since she started working with compassion and choices. And we talk really regularly. And I always tell Dana, one of the most powerful things she ever did or said was once just telling her friends, I, um, me included, like, I, I just want you to sit in what I'm feeling and know that you can't help me and know that you can't fix it. And that is the hardest part for family members to do, but it is something that doulas really have to train themselves to do. Um, I'm not just giving an ear. I'm like letting what you're saying really sit with me. And I think that when family members can allow themselves to do that, which is super hard. Like I had a very hard time doing that with my grandfather. Um, I, cause I wanted to fix everything and I had kind of just started my research a little bit. Um, but it was horribly painful. And so I don't fault anybody for that. I think that's the other thing when doulas are part of our job is to be non-judgmental, completely open-minded and available for that space. Um, I mean, if family members are getting like <laughs> really rude and all that kind of stuff, which I really haven't dealt with, but I know other people have, um, you know, there's, you are allowed to say like, <laughs> I'm not going to be talked to that way, et cetera. But I haven't experienced that. And for the most part, the tension I've experienced has been simply out of fear and like everybody involved, every family member, every loved one, um, has feelings about what's happening. And you can't always talk to the, your loved one that's sick about what you're feeling. And so allowing yourself the grace to say what you need and to recognize that you're a human being and we're all, all every single time we talk about death and dying, we're thinking about ourselves somewhere inside. Um, every time I think about death and dying, I think about my parents and my husband and my kid every single day, right? Which is like, a lot. To, it sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not because every, for me, because every time I'm thinking about it or working on it, because I'm trying to make it better for other people. I want to make end of life better for other people. And so if I think about my loved ones and my family, when I'm doing that, it helps keep me focused. Um, even during the legislative session, when it's like really exhausting and we're super busy, or if I've got a lot of clients or a frustrated family, um, remembering that what I'm doing is supposed to be making it easier for other people and for my loved ones in the future. Um, that helps a lot. And I think it helps redirect families when you frame it that way too. Powerful stuff. <clears throat> I agree. Um, 
yeah, just a lot to unpack there. I'm just sitting here, lots of, lots of my head that I'm thinking about. What would you say to our listeners who are grieving or having a difficult time with maybe a sudden loss or a loss that they expected or maybe anticipating losing somebody to a disease? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say about like grief and any advice to move forward in a positive direction? Um, oof. It's it's, yeah. And it's also like, I will be the first to admit, um, you know, I experienced my first really, really big loss when I was 11. Um, and I'm 36 now. Is that right? 35, almost 37. I forgot how old I was. (laughs) I do Um, (laughs) Right. I'm like, what happened? Um, so we just hit the 24th anniversary and I still am grieving. And so I think that that is really important for people to remember that like grief is not linear and it doesn't end. It just changes. Um, That's how I often think about it. It doesn't end. It just changes shape. It just looks different. Um, But it is also really, really powerful and can be a really powerful um, tool and um, a really unwelcomed but valuable companion sometimes. Um, I think that finding finding ways to honor the person you loved in a um, relevant way is really important. So for some people, like going to someone's gravesite, leaving flowers, isn't going to work for them or work for how, what their grief looks like. Um, Some people want to smash stuff. Some people want to make art. Some people want to sing. Some people want to go hide. There's so many different things that our grief pushes us to do. And I think when we start to look at it as a companion rather than an enemy, um, it can become easier to navigate, easier to be comfortable with. Anticipatory grief is no joke at all. Anticipatory grief is painful and very, very real. And I think allowing yourself to feel all the things um, and validate them is really, really important because all of those feelings deserve space. They deserve to be heard because they're all part of you. And the more that we stuff them down, the louder they're going to be trying to get out um, and the more struggle it's going to be. So I think finding a way that resonates, you know, finding something too that reminds you of the person is really powerful. Um, I think things like legacy projects or cool projects to do with them. If we're talking about anticipatory grief, like doing something together that can be, you know, I love making like videos. (laughs) I used to do that a lot. Or um, I had a client who made um, a playlist for all of her friends and she like curated, right? So things like that, where you're like building in grief practices that feel accurate or feel connected to the person, you know, like if, um, when my grandfather died, I, um, decided that I wanted to start writing more because he was a writer. So when I do, when I write things that he would have liked that it feels like I'm exploring my grief. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, I, my, um, husband, his father passed eight or nine years ago and he writes music that reminds him of his dad. And so finding things like that to like let your grief out a little bit and give it space 
give it some stage time, however you want to phrase it, um, because it's important and it, it, it isn't going to go away and it, it lives in us. And so we have to honor that part of ourselves, I think. So I know that's like vague and like <laughs> kind of pie in the sky, but no, I, I thought that was excellent. I thought beautifully said, um, heavy, I'm, you know, emotional just listening to your words, but uh, you gave concrete examples of things people can do to help process that. I think you hit it so importantly that grief has no time limit. Mm -hmm. This is something that I've kind of learned through this experience is that it, it doesn't go away, like you said, and it comes in different forms. And I think at times it's just maybe lighter than others, mm -hmm. but it is a lifelong thing. I can't imagine ever waking up and just, you know, thinking of someone that you lost in a way and there's no way that, you know, the it, grief is just gone, right? Like it yeah. just, there's no stopping point. It doesn't right. just stop. Yeah. If you're a person and you feel, you're going to feel it at different points in life. And you gave some really wonderful ideas to kind of help monitor that. And I've said it before on this podcast, I feeling out those emotions is so important. And these are heavy discussions, but, and it doesn't mean, having them, we have to sit around and be morbid and sad and, you know, talk about death all day, but yeah, preparing and, you know, uh, that anticipatory grief, as you described it, recognizing that and trying to find a balance and understanding is just so important. It's easy for us to just kind of bury this stuff, right. And pretend like it's not there. I I'm guilty of that. Certainly. Oh, for um, same. I mean, our brains are so good at protecting us that it's a detriment sometimes, right? Like I love my brain for what it's trying to protect me from, but sometimes that keeps me from growth. And I think grief, you know, and grief can also be really challenging if it's someone that you had a strained relationship with. I have been through that with loved ones who passed who things were not good before they went. And that is a whole other kind of grief, right? That also deserves validation and also deserves space. Um, wow. Yeah. Just hearing that gives me the chills. I mean, I think we were all in those types of situations. One thing as a kid, I remember my mom telling me as a little kid, I mean, talking six and seven years old is, you know, don't leave the house if you're mad at someone, you know, you never know what can happen. And I've always really held on to that. And that is one of my fears is that I will leave on a bad term with someone. And yeah, tell, tell us more about that. I mean, how is that? How, how have you handled that in your experience? Yeah. Um, it has been really challenging. Um, I've lost a few people that way. Um, one was a former partner who, um, unfortunately died of an overdose a few months after we split up. And that was really, really challenging because I was so angry at him the last time he saw me. Um, and you know, it's been, oh gosh, I don't know, like 12 years or something. And I'm married and happy and whatever. Right. But grief is like, you know, love and anger are so close <laughs> and grief is kind of like in there, right? Like grief can live with anger and grief can live with love. And for him, it was both. Um, and so I have had to do a lot of um, outward grief that feels uncomfortable. I've talked out loud to him. I've played music that reminds me of him. I've said, I'm sorry to him out loud. I've said, I, I hate you and I'm sorry out loud. Um, you know, I've 
written things and burned them and tore them up. And I find that tangible things are really helpful, especially if there's a lot of anger going on. Um, and I'm sure you see that too with students. It's, it's like such a good tool to have your hands in something. Um, and so I think all of those are valid ways to show anger. But again, that grief is so different. The grief I have for Danny is completely different than what I've had for, you know, my best friend died when we were 11. My grief for her, completely different. My grief for my grandparents, completely different. And that's frustrating because it feels like you're constantly working. It's like, oh my God, like, which, how do I feel today? Like, how am I going to feel? And and often I end up, I don't, I might, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I end up in these like guilt spirals when it comes to grief where I'll feel like I didn't do enough or I should, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done this. And I think it's important for people to know that like, no matter how close to this work you are, that stuff still happens. I think about that all the time. Um, when I, you know, like I said earlier about, you know, clients I've, I've had feelings like that about, but there's things with grandparents and stuff like that, that I've, that I continue to beat myself up about. And I have to pull myself out of that. And it's not easy. It's something that I've had to kind of train myself to have rituals around just because of my work. I can't like allow that to to take over. Otherwise I'm not of service to myself or anyone else. Um, but finding outlets and allowing myself to look silly when I'm grieving is another thing, like allowing myself to look or sound or be weird in order to get those feelings out is super crucial. <laughs> like, I think we have to be willing to look absolutely ridiculous and, and be vulnerable, which a lot of us don't like, especially in, in such a sensitive space as grief. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lot, lots of really, really good stuff to think about and reflect on here. Um, how, geez. Yeah. I'm just thinking about all this stuff. <laughs> um, one of the things we've talked about in the past, and I guess I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about this is the idea of a sudden loss versus something like, you know, someone who's sick mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. slowly dying from a disease. I don't know yeah. if you've had personal experience with that or if mm -hmm. um, you wanted to share any ideas that you might have behind that thought. But I mean, that, I feel like that in itself could be a case study, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've actually taken there. I've taken some great courses with doulas who kind of do courses on working with families during unexpected loss. That's not usually something that, you know, doulas don't always get pulled in for that um, because it's unexpected. Um, but personally, I've had multiple experiences with it and um, which is part of what, you know, has led me here. Um, and I think that it's a lot more, um, I have more um, anxiety or frustration or negative thoughts around those deaths. So I think understanding that those are just going to be different, right? I didn't get to sit next to that person and tell them I loved them. I didn't get to just literally feel their energy one more time. Um, and if it's something that, you know, there's so many different kinds of unexpected deaths, um, 
you know, and depending on if there was violence involved, if there was an accident, if, if it was self-inflicted, like there's so many other components that tie into it. But I think the thing with, you know, just the way that anticipatory grief is really painful in advance. Um, it's a lot of the same like questioning and, and panic when it's unexpected. Um, like, what did I miss? What should I have done? You know, and you feel like you have whiplash or something, um, you know, and, and if it's been an accident, there's just a lot of, you know, questioning. Um, I find that I have, and I also know other folks who've kind of obsessed about details when it's unexpected. And I think that's something that I've seen a lot and that I know, I understand why <laughs> I understand I have that same urge. Um, and for some people, having all of that information, having details is soothing to them. Um, and for other people, it can start kind of um, a new, like, intrusive thought, you know? And so I think that's what's so hard is you don't have time to know that about yourself. Like, you, you know, if it's the first time that that's happened, you're like, well, I don't know how I'm going to react because this has never happened before. And I don't know what I need. And, and so much of it is based on your relationship with that person too. Um, and, and again, the, the situation that led to their death, all of those things are so individual and make it so different for everybody. But I think all around, like my biggest piece of advice ever, and the thing that has been most effective for me has been finding community and, and again, finding people to talk to. Um, I, I do talk about this fairly regularly, but when my friend died when we were 11, um, it was really challenging because we were young and the people around us, the adults around us didn't really know how to talk about the loss that we just experienced. And we were kids, so we sure didn't either, right? But because of that, there was a fear about talking about it. And there was an avoidance about this sudden death. Um which was incredibly traumatizing and is part of why I'm still grieving it um, because it felt very like we weren't allowed to talk about it. It was too upsetting. It was too traumatic, et cetera, et cetera. And so that left me and all of my friends at the time, like filling in the gaps. Um, and that was awful because there was just always something, some new terrible thing that I could decide happened. Um, and it broke our group of friends apart. We stopped being friends after elementary school. It was, we headed into middle school and pretended like we didn't know each other because it was so painful. Um, and so like opening up and actually talking and actually sharing is so crucial, but you have to find people you trust to do that with. And that goes back to like the way that our society talks about death and dying. It can feel really scary. Even if you're ready to be vulnerable, it can be really scary to just trust that somebody else is going to hold that for you because so many people are scared to talk about it. Um, but at the same time, somebody's choice to open up about those feelings can crack that open for everybody else and turn into this like beautiful space where everybody can openly feel their feelings without judgment. I think that is what I would like to see just in general is all of us being able to show our grief without, um, without judgment and um, with grace and um, support. And so unexpected deaths are 
you know, um, hard in a way that I don't think I'll ever understand. Um, I don't think I'll ever understand the true impact because I was so young. You know, I have no idea what my life would be like now if Carrie was still here. Um, I have no idea what my high school years or college years would have been like if I'd had those friends. Um, I have no idea what her family's life would be like, you know, there's, and so those things never really go away. Um, but if you can find community, find people to talk to and find things that you feel comfortable, you know, even sharing alone, like I said, I think writing is so powerful. Everybody always says that, but just like a brain dump, like I feel angry. I feel mad about this. I feel whatever that doesn't have to go anywhere, but just getting it out on paper is, you know, studies show that that really helps. And, and it does. <laughs> it's one of those things, like when people say you should drink more water and you're like, Oh, I hate that. Cause I should. And I know it'll help. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> writing down your feelings is like, Oh, like I know it'll help, but like, sometimes it's hard to do. Um, yeah, of course it takes a lot of courage and like you said, vulnerability, mm-hmm. you've provided so much wonderful information and things to think about. Um, I guess one of my last kind of questions for you, well, kind of two more. First of all, I remember being a very young kid and I'm talking like six or seven and kind of like looking up the stars and thinking or laying in bed at night and just thinking, what happens when we die? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, for as long as I can think back, these are things I've been wondering. I don't know if that is applicable to you or to our listeners, but I wondered when, what, when did you recognize that life that we're all mortal and that we will die at some point. Were you young as well? I mean, you obviously had a very early experience at the age of 11. Yeah, I was think that thoughts was before that. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, your learning about this. Yeah, about death. I, I think the first thing, the first like death that I experienced, like a lot of young people was a pet. I think a lot of folks, that's like kind of the first one, right? Sure. But this was one that I felt like was my fault. Um, because it was my hamster and he got too cold and I felt bad because I had opened the window. Um, and so that was like my first, and of course, like my first experience with death and also extreme guilt, which is like part of the problem. Um, but I'm sure that didn't help. Um, but I remember that being really traumatizing and my parents being really great about being like, Hey, this happens. Like, you know, ham- you know, and I'm sure they massaged it a little bit and we're like, well, hamsters don't live very long. Um, but, uh, but they allowed me to grieve. They allowed me to, we buried him. We had like a whole thing. Right. And so for a lot of kids, like <clears throat> you go through that experience and usually people are more comfortable talking about death and dying when it comes to pets. So then when it happens with adults, like that difference in, in my experience of the way that my parents handled my hamster and one of my lizards, RIP Ariel, died, right? <laughs> so my parents handled those one way. But then seeing the difference between how they handled that and then like a person dying, like was scary to me um, and confusing. And and so I, I used to think about, um, you know, yeah, where is Carrie? I used to lay in bed at night when I was, you know, 10 or 11 and wonder that the same way I'd wondered about my, <laughs> about my hamster, but it became, um, stronger and a more powerful curiosity 
um, once I lost her. And I think I had lost, you know, like, I think like a great aunt or something like that prior, you know, but the, she was the first person that I was like close, close to. And then also when it's like a kid, that's like a whole other thing, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I remember that kind of sparking what became a very, like a lifelong, um, curiosity about that. So I would say that I'm, you know, I mentioned that my, you know, friends and family, we all just kind of stopped talking and everything, but I never stopped wondering. And so I think I spent a lot of time being curious in my own head, but not really having anybody to talk to about it. Um, but yeah, I've always wondered that what happens where, you know, where do we go? What does that mean? Um, and I think that that open curiosity has allowed me to, allowed me to grieve because I'm recognizing it. And um, curiosity to something implies some openness, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think that's probably, <laughs> even though the hamster was really important, I think probably losing my friend, that was the, the, the difference in those two really impacted the way that I think about death and, and what happens. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those examples. Those resonate deeply with me. Um, I can almost visualize it, right? The idea of like a pet, losing a pet. And then when you get older and you actually lose a person, it's having to find that balance and understanding without those discussions. I mm -hmm. can't imagine how hard that is to navigate. Mm -hmm. It seemed one thing I'm taking away from you and the podcast as a whole is that having these discussions is very important. And even it's a starting point, right? Uh, it's somewhere to kind of not necessarily start from maybe journaling is your starting point. Who knows? There's a lot of different areas to yeah. that you can kind of get started from. But I think what's I've taken away most is that, yes, reflecting on this and having discussions at some point or talking with family is so, so important and can make processes like grieving and somebody dying easier in a sense. If you had any advice to give to our listeners, anything from, you know, medical aid and dying to what you do as a death doula to planning for end of life care, or even uh, just how to talk to kids or whatever. What's something that you want our listeners to know as we kind of get ready to send it over to Hasvan, which is always our closing point. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, what a big, beautiful question. Um, I think, I think I would say that um, nobody has the answer here. Um, and nobody can tell you what your grief looks like. So nobody has the answer. And I think that there's like relief in that for me, at least. Like, I feel like if I'm doing the things that my loved ones have shared that they want done, if I'm following my intuition, if I'm following and paying attention to my values and priorities, if that's what I'm using to make my decisions and that's what I'm using to have conversations, then what happens is death can, and I have seen it, death can be joyous. It can be beautiful and powerful and really, really, really special. And I think everybody deserves that. And I think everybody's loved ones deserve that. Um, and so being, being gentle with yourself and recognizing that nobody has the right answer. It's, it's so individualized and special, um, which is what makes it challenging and so beautiful. So 
be kind to yourself, allow yourself to grieve in whatever way comes natural, because whatever that is, is the right way for you. Another beautiful answer. Thanks, Megan. Um, Hasban, do you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to share or chime in with here? Yeah, uh, Megan. So what I normally do is, uh, as you guys are talking, I just take some notes, you know, just so we have some show notes if we need them. And I obviously try to see if there's a question that wasn't asked. And um, something me and Andrew have been talking about is that each episode just gets better and better because I felt like you really answered every point. Um, and even like the commercial <laughs> side of it and like everything, it was really cool. I did have one or two questions maybe on things that you already spoke about. Um, one thing that you did is you made me think about grief differently when you described it. I've always thought of it as like a negative, but you made me rethink that. So I guess my question was, does, can grief become a positive force in people's lives? I think that's what a wonderful question. And also thank you for saying that. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, grief in a way is a way for us to check in with our loved one, right? Um, if I'm feeling active grief, so I, you, y'all can see this. I know the radio folks can't, but like <laughs> that's a picture of my grandparents up there. And I have more over here. Um, and they were my best friends. They never got to meet my husband or my stepkid. And so I, I grieve them regularly, but when I do, it's an opportunity for me to talk to them. It's an opportunity for me to look at a picture. It's an opportunity for me to think about a memory. And so I think grief can be something that's like, I mean, a check-in, right? Again, we don't know what happens, but I do know that if I'm thinking about somebody, they're with me in a way. And so I absolutely think it can be a positive. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Like I said, you changed my perspective. And uh, somebody I wanted to ask you about was Donna or um, Dana. Mm -hmm. um, I know she supports medical aid in dying, but something she said on the podcast that really kind of um, inspired me and I thought it was like profound is that she said she might not want to use that option even if it was available to her because she wants to experience death. And I was just wondering, is this common? Yeah, I mean, so what's interesting is, um, you know, and I'm the same way actually, Dan and I have talked about this a lot. I'm not sure I would use it. And not because there is intrigue, right? I think that there's interest in like, I want to know what my family members have experienced, et cetera. Now there's nothing to tell me that it would really be different, you know, cause I, mm -hmm. a lot of times, again, our body knows how to die. We're just kind of shutting down, which is essentially what happens when medical aid and dying medication is involved. Um, but I think that like, it's, a lot of times just knowing it's there is really the gift for people. So, you know, we have a lot of statistics that show that very few people or, you know, a small, uh, I think I can't, maybe half, I can't remember a small amount of people who get the medication actually take it and really just having it is, is the key. And I think for some people, if that is an option, and then they also simultaneously have a really beautiful support system and they're comfortable and safe and they feel ready to do it just at home without the medication. It kind of just serves as like a, oh, I don't even know what to call it. It's just like an extra <laughs> comfort, an extra level of comfort. But I do, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who, um, especially somebody like Dana who has developed their relationship and understanding of death so intentionally um and has been so open about it like dana i 
I have a similar poll where I'm like, I don't know what I would want at the end. Maybe I really want to know what every single second of it feels like. I want to know what my grandparents went through or whatever. So yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised that she said that. <laughs> it sounds like a Dana <laughs> statement because you talked about that before. So yeah, I think um, I'm not surprised when I hear people say that. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting concept. Uh, I, I basically, I, I stood on that for a while. Even as you were speaking, I, I still was because I'm like, well, even if you go into hospice, it's not net, you know, natural, natural. You could, you know, the word natural, I guess, could be so yeah. um, what is that um, up to interpretation. Yeah. Um, so oh. I'm not sure, but thank you for your yeah. thoughts. That does actually yeah. help me think about it further. Yeah, um, exactly. And there's things like, you know, I'll, I'll also say, you know, there's, you know, um, voluntary stopping eating and drinking, there's palliative sedation, there's like mm -hmm. other options. And so knowing what all of those are and what that might be like, or, you know, on the outside, that's really all we can know is what it's like on the outside. Right. But, um, mm -hmm. understanding all of those things is, is also super helpful. And so I think that's, um, that exploration and understanding what all of those things mean and what the processes are can kind of help you navigate some of those feelings because it's totally normal. And I, I also, it's dependent on diagnosis, right? So I, it completely depends. I have no idea what might be the thing that, that. Yeah. A lot of context, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I just have one final question um, and we'll let you go. You've given us a lot of good time. Um, how do people normally find out about death doulas and is there any information on how it affects outcomes? Um, great question. Um, I have seen some data that shows that just that having doulas is overall a positive experience. I think there's a lot of research that's starting, which is very exciting, um, because people are starting to take it seriously. Um, and I, there's actually a program, University of Vermont, their medical school has like a doula certification program that's kind of like a that's attached to it, um, that has a lot of um, like health providers that go through that program. So you'll also see a lot of hospice nurses and palliative care doctors and stuff sometimes just learn those things just to learn more. Mm -hmm. um, so I usually people find them through like Google searches. Also, okay. um, again, the National um, End of Life Doula Alliance, they have a great um, website of resources. Other people will, yeah, it's a lot of Google searching. I will also say Instagram is like a huge <laughs> community of deaf doulas. Like it's wild. There's so many of us there um, and great grief practitioners and all sorts of amazing like death positive people there. And so a lot of folks um, have family members or whatever that see that on social media and then talk to them about it. So it's kind of a smattering also with all the updated, you know, lots of news stories, there's been like some New York times articles and stuff about doulas. And whenever that happens, there's always kind of an uptick in people trying to find you and send messages. Yeah. Everything starts with Google, no matter what it is. <laughs> Pretty uh, much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, Megan, <clears throat> this has just been such a tremendous conversation. I also want to share a quote from Ellen Goodman. I feel like it's very applicable to this discussion. It's something that something that I've kind of thought about quite a bit and can be applied, I think, in certain ways. Anyways, the quote reads, there's a trick to the graceful exit. It begins with the vision to recognize when a job, a life stage or relationship is over and let it go. It means leaving what's over without denying its validity or its past importance to our lives. 
It involves a sense of future, a belief that every exit line is an entry and that we're moving up rather than out. So I, I guess I read that because one of the things I'm taking away from this conversation is how this can be a beautiful process and something like grief can be a tool that we can use if we figure out a way to kind of shape it and make it fit to, I guess, what we need in that moment. And I really appreciate your time and just, uh, yeah, you sharing your experiences has been tremendous. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. This has been really, really special. And I think the part that I love most about my job and the thing that makes leaving teaching was really hard, but the thing that makes it worth it is that I get to work with people like you every day who are so honest and open about their experiences and allow us to use that to advocate. And I thank you for that because you are so amazing. And, um, this show is so special. And so I thank you for sharing that with your listeners and with us. For sure, friend. You've been tremendous. Can't wait to release this episode. And I've got a feeling that we'll definitely be in touch in the future. So thank you again, Megan. We really appreciate you. My friend. Thank you. So nice to see you both. (laughs) You too, friend. We'll be thinking of you. We'll talk soon. Okay. And hi to your mom. Oh, for sure. I'm giving you a big hug too. I oh, wish I could just same, give you a big same. hug right big now. Big hugs so. from Portland. <laughs> All right, friend. Talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.